Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Essentially, all women eventually enter menopause. And while most end up not taking hormones to treat their symptoms, they at least have the option to do so. Women with a breast cancer diagnosis, on the other hand, they don't have that choice. And unlike women who enter menopause spontaneously, women who enter menopause because of breast cancer treatment, especially if they're young, often are dealing with a precipitous sudden drop in estrogen. Some women with breast cancer were already postmenopause at the time of their diagnosis and are advised to immediately stop taking their hormone therapy. Then there are women who years after their cancer diagnosis spontaneously enter menopause. All of these women are told or assume that they're not candidates for estrogen therapy, and they're just expected to put up with hot flashes, brain fog, insomnia, and bone loss, not to mention all the stuff going on below the belly button. In this segment, I'm going to be sticking to treatment options for hot flashes in women with a breast cancer diagnosis or women at high risk for breast cancer. When I decided to do this episode, I knew the person I wanted to have this conversation with was Dr. Corrine Men. Dr. Men is a board-certified gynecologist with an expertise in menopause and sexual medicine who herself was diagnosed with invasive breast cancer as a young woman. Dr. Men and I are going to talk about the safest, most effective way for women with breast cancer to turn down the heat, starting with non-hormonal options. And then we're going to move on to the big question. When, if ever, is it reasonable and safe for a woman with a breast cancer diagnosis to take systemic oral or transdermal estrogen, not just to alleviate her hot flashes, but for the benefits to bones, brain, vulva, and vagina. Dr. Men is going to walk us through the science behind why women with breast cancer are told to avoid estrogen and why, in fact, it may be just fine. I think you'll be surprised at a lot of what Dr. Men has to say. Welcome, Dr. Men. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this because this has been my, this is my, everything you said there is my own personal experience and my experience of over 20 years of practicing and taking care of women in general, but especially those who are at higher risk for breast cancer, breast cancer survivors. And in particular, my real, the heart, my passion is taking care of what I think is the most vulnerable women. And those are the young breast cancer survivors. So those are women who are diagnosed before the age of natural menopause under the age of 45. And, you know, they're, their menopausal experience is the most extreme with the most um, serious consequences. And those are the women who are living the longest with these menopausal symptoms. Well, that, that's such an important the- point that they're living the longest. So what you're describing is your story. Yes. My story is very um, illustrative of like all of the problems that we're going <laughs> to talk about today. So to make a very long story short, when I was 28 in 2001, um, I was a second year OBGYN resident in New York City. 
My mother had just six weeks prior um, died suddenly of advanced ovarian cancer. That's a whole other story in itself. But besides her ovarian cancer, we had no other breast or ovarian cancer history in our family. So when I felt a lump um, right before she died, I wasn't that worried. Uh, subsequently, after um, her funeral, I said, hey, I should probably get this checked out. I was diagnosed with stage two invasive ductal and lobular breast cancer with some lymph node involvement and subsequently went on to have bilateral mastectomy, six months of chemotherapy, uh, multiple breast reconstruction. And I like to tell patients, I went through menopause three times. So first time during um, chemotherapy, so the chemotoxic effects on my ovaries temporarily put me in menopause. I recovered my ovarian function because I was young. My ovaries were, you know, I was only 28. So I was able to get some ovarian function back. Periods came back and they threw me into menopause a second time. They put me on Lupron to shut quiet my ovaries down, shut down the production of estrogen and added tamoxifen. So I went through menopause from the Lupron. And then subsequently took a pause in my endocrine therapy, had um had a, a healthy pregnancy naturally, no problems, and did great. And then um, a few few years later, decided to remove both of my ovaries um, as a preventative measure for ovarian cancer. So then I went through menopause a third time surgically. And the entire process, I was really on my own, even though I was an OBGYN and I should have known how to treat myself. There really, I was not educated in menopause care. I was not educated in um, certainly menopause care for the breast cancer survivor. And it was around the same time, you know, as when the WHI results came out. And so there was a lot of fear and misconceptions about hormones and I was left in the dust. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you think that the lack of information that you were given had anything to do with the fact that you yourself were a physician? So they assumed that you knew what you were doing or do you think you just got the same kind of counseling that every single woman gets, which is basically no counseling at all? No, I, I got no counseling at all. In fact, I mean, any counseling I got was because I pushed it. And you're right. Sometimes they don't treat doctors the same as patients because they think we know stuff. But I think because I was um, so young and in a unique situation, I, my doctors were extremely compassionate and they really went out of their way to help me um, pursue things that I thought were mattered. For instance, pregnancy, you know, and we can talk about this briefly because it does relate to hormone therapy question after breast cancer diagnosis, yeah. because, you know, at the time it was still a bit controversial whether they should allow someone who is estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, like myself, to, you know, take a pause from their tamoxifen or endocrine therapy, and get pregnant. But I did just that. So there was a recent study, um, the positive trial that was that just showed um, it was just released at ASCO this year that women can take a pause up to two years in their endocrine therapy, get pregnant, and then go back on whatever therapy they were on, and they had no increased risk of okay, recurrence but, but and no problems. Back up yeah. a little bit, because to me, the striking thing of this story isn't just that you took a pause. It's one thing to take a pause. It's another thing to put yourself in a biologic condition that you have sky high levels of estrogen for nine months. We really need to emphasize this because we're going to be talking about how dangerous it is or isn't to actually take estrogen when, when one has a breast cancer diagnosis. And with the blessing of your doctors and with the blessing of doctors today, young women with an estrogen positive cancer are basically told, sure, 
Put yourself in a situation where your levels of estrogen are going to be much, much higher than they ever would be from, you know, 10 times the dose of, of menopausal hormone therapy. So at the time, was that striking to you or what, what, how did that hit yeah, you? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was really lucky because I was in New York City and I was able to have access to some of the leading doctors who were tackling this question. And so at that point, there had actually been quite a number of studies and a ton of data out there showing that women who got pregnant either got pregnant after breast diagnosis or were diagnosed with breast cancer while they were pregnant. So in both ca- both cases, you're right, their body, their body is flooded with hormones. And all of those observational studies and all the case reports and data said that those women not only didn't have a worse prognosis or an increased risk of recurrence, those women did better. And we know this to this day that women who were diagnosed while pregnant or diagnosed with breast cancer while taking hormone replacement therapy have a less, like a a better prognosis and less advanced disease. I think it comes down to, we have to start, stop thinking about estrogen as, as it being very black and white, like it's all bad or it's all good. It's very complex and it really depends on you know, what's happening at that moment in time in your body with your breast cancer. And it's not that estrogen is causing the breast cancer. Exactly. Well, you've Um, done very very well, right? I just want to just so that everyone listening is aware. You have been fine since then. You've really, you know, you've not had a recurrence. You're years and years and years away from your diagnosis. And, um, and you were someone who, who took that pause and, and put yourself in a high estrogen state. We're going to circle back to that because the other thing I want to ask about also is that, you know, we've already established that your doctor never brought up the topic with you. Did, did you bring it up when you started having menopausal symptoms? Did you ask your doctors um, what you should do and, and were they helpful? No and no. So I think one thing, you know, is and you brought it up in your when you the intro is that when women are going through a cancer, you know, during cancer treatment, which, you know, can last them, you know, six months or a year or more. And then the collateral damage from that treatment lasts years. So I was thrown into, you know, chemotherapy induced menopause. So looking back, I realize now with my knowledge that a lot of the suffering I had during my chemotherapy was from being thrown into premature menopause at the age of 28. Insomnia, night sweats, hot flashes, new onset of anxiety. And yes, of course, I had anxiety because I was dealing with the breast cancer diagnosis. And a medical student, I might add. (laughs) And not a medical student, a OBGYN resident. Oh, you were a resident at the time. Yeah. I was a resident. So, yes. But looking back, a lot of my symptoms were menopause related. And at the time, everybody's focus was on, rightfully so, I got it, getting you know rid of my cancer and treating me. Yeah. So I don't even think I had the knowledge or insight to say like, hey, maybe this isn't just chemo side effects. Maybe this is something else. And maybe somebody should have at least offered me some non-hormonal options to deal with my menopausal symptoms, systemic symptoms. And then we can also talk about, you know, the fact that I suffered in silence with the sexual side effects and the vaginal side effects of treatment. Um, And it wasn't really until my probably third time going through menopause when I finally had my ovaries taken out where a nurse in my oncologist's office was like, Corinne, 
we can put you on a little SSRI and that might help your hot flashes. And I was like, really? <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, that was some years ago. Do you feel like it has gotten any better now that a woman with a breast cancer diagnosis who's having these symptoms, do you feel like she's proactively offered solutions to help with her hot flashes? Or do you think that's something that just generally does not get addressed? I think it's certainly a bit better because we do have more, we have clearer guidelines, you know, um, the North American Menopause Society, ASCO, they do have guidelines. But, you know, I think it's really important for doctors who are treating patients to remember that the guidelines that are presented at like society um, conferences, like we were at at Ishwish or at NAMS, you know, we're in a bubble of highly knowledgeable people who are interested in this topic. I don't find, because I spent my career as a community physician in a private practice in a community, not in a big academic medical center. So I feel like I, I'm, I'm kind of really on the ground, so to speak. And I just don't think those guidelines and those standards of care are really being trickled down to patients, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. So what I'd like to do is, is let's just dive into it because I have lots of other episodes that kind of go through the pros and cons of oral and transdermal and the different types and all that. So I don't want to spend time on that because, you know, been there, done that. I want to really just focus on 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 breast cancer. And and usually when I talk about hot flash options, I, I start with the over the counter stuff and do lifestyle options. But what I really want to focus on are the things that work the best besides estrogen, which, you know, we're not going to, we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to talk about the pharmaceutical options that women should be offered to alleviate their hot flashes. So um, there's a lot of them out there. And you mentioned, of course, that you were given um, an SSRI, an antidepressant. So could you talk a little bit about the use of SSRIs and SNRIs for the woman with a breast cancer diagnosis? SSRIs are the most well-studied and really the first-line non-hormonal option for women. And, you know, one thing I want women who are listening to this and doctors is that we should really be very proactive and you brought that up and we shouldn't be waiting for her to, you know, come in months later suffering. We know these women who are on chemotoxic or, you know, ovarian toxic chemotherapy or on aromatase inhibitors are going to have significant menopausal symptoms. That's for women dealing with a breast cancer diagnosis who want a non-hormonal option for their vasomotor symptoms, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are the first line. Um, so SS. RIs and SSNRIs are medications used for depression and anxiety, but in low doses, they're quite effective as a non-hormonal option for dealing with vasomotor symptoms. If you're taking tamoxifen, there are certain ones that you should not take because it lowers the effectiveness of tamoxifen. <clears throat> Mainly the one being is um, Paxil or paroxetine, which can lower the effectiveness. So often women are prescribed Effexor, and that's what I used. And Effexor in studies has been shown in the 75 milligram and 150 milligram doses to be pretty effective at vasomotor symptoms. But remember, that's what it's treating. It's treating your vasomotor, not <clears throat> treating menopausal symptoms in the way that hormone replacement therapy would. It's one of the themes that we're going to keep returning to is it's one thing to treat vasomotor symptoms, which obviously are important not only for um, for quality of life, but also the impact that uh, hot flashes has on sleep and 
cardiovascular and all that, but it's not going to treat your, your, your bones and your vagina. So, um, and I think for a lot of women, it's also confusing this notion of taking an antidepressant, but as you said, um, we're really doing much, much lower doses. And so, in, in your case, and I know everyone's story is different, but you said that it, it did help you. You were able to get some sleep and decrease your flashes. Yes, it, it was very helpful. But I do think women need to be informed of what it does and what it does not do. Right. And so I do counsel women that we're not just throwing an antidepressant on you because we think it's just all in your head. But the reality is vasomotor symptoms do start in your brain. And so I do try to explain to them that, you know, hot flashes are originating there. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why it's helpful. You know, the one thing that I've really been thinking about recently is that we're 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 throwing a lot of these breast cancer survivors on these antidepressants and they can be helpful for vasomotor symptoms. But we also don't talk to them about that. We know that those are those medications are in the class of medications that cause a lot of sexual desire, you know, effects. And so except Except is that's dose related. And I think one of the reasons that they did come out with this very low dose paroxetine, the 7.5 milligram, which is much lower than is used for depression. Depression, people are usually taking 10, 20, 30, 40 milligrams. And the beauty yeah. of that is that at the 7.5 milligram dose, you don't have those sexual side effects like loss of libido and inability to have an orgasm and all those delightful yeah. symptoms. But But to your point, a lot of women are prescribed the higher dose because it's generic and it's less expensive and they're not told about the sexual side effects. But also, you know, a lot of women aren't on that low dose because they are on tamoxifen and they can't take that one. So, you know, that's that's another issue. And and you're right. They're they're on a, a higher dose because of the generic issue. Um, so, you know, I think that the problem is, is there isn't a discussion of sexual side effects. One, these women are also de- dealing with genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So they're having a ton of vaginal symptoms, dryness, decreased lubrication. And so it's kind of a double whammy for these yeah. women. But yes, they can be very helpful and should be considered something that we talk about right at the get go. Women should not be suffering. Yeah. Um but, you know, those aren't the only non-hormonal medications. No. And, and so I was going to ask you, I mean, that's what you were prescribed. And quite frankly, that's what I think most women are first prescribed. But as someone who treats women, is that your first line go to for a prescription drug or something that else that you go to first? Frankly, yes, it is, uh, because I've found it to be the most effective with the least amount of other negative side effects. Um, if someone has, you know, one of their main symptoms is they're really having problems with sleep at night, plus they're having hot flashes. You know, the next thing we can talk about is gabapentin or brand name Neurontin um, that can really help, especially with the sleep disturbances. Uh, but not everybody tolerates that. And kind of as we start to go down the list of other options, you know, we get to a point where these non-hormonal medications can be helpful, but they have other side effects. Off-label use, we use oxybutin, which is a medication. Okay, so that's the one I want, I want you to talk about, because that's actually the one that mm-hmm. is high up on my list. I think a lot of women are not told about it and are not familiar with it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting option that I feel like a lot of oncologists and GYNs are not really that familiar with, but they really should be. You're right, because it has 
uh, great efficacy in lowering hot flashes. Like 75%, um, right? In the clinical yeah. trials. I mean, that's, yeah, huge. that's really, as good really as estrogen, high. quite frankly. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it comes with some of the side effects of um, dry eyes, a little bit of dry mouth um, because of this antihistamine effect that it has, but it can be really, really effective. And particularly there are a lot of postmenopausal women out there who might have overactive bladder as well. So you're that's kind right. of- And it is, and I think we forgot to point that out, that it is yeah. actually, that's what it's FDA approved for. This, the Hot flash remedy is, is off label. What it's approved for yes. is, is that got to go overactive bladders. So it's kind of like a twofer. Totally. And so, you know, I would love to see a more proactive approach. So we know we've got women, say, on aromatase inhibitors, they're, they're amoxifen and they're menopausal, and they've got tons of vaginal and urinary symptoms, but they also have hot flashes and night sweats. So oxybutynin could be a great option for those women, along with, which we'll talk about, vaginal estrogen, which can be, you know, life changing on so many levels for women. And um, I find whether it's the non-hormonal medications or the vaginal products that we can talk about, um, often it's there's a delay in offering it to the women to the point where they have so much other dysfunction going on in their life, their their physical health, because they've been denied access of right. these very active options. You know, one of the things about oxybutynin, and I'm going to spell it because I know women are not familiar with it and they're going to want to know, it's O-X-Y-B-U-T-Y-N-I-N. One of the cautions, if you will, about oxybutynin, this overactive bladder drug that gets rid of hot flashes by 75%, is that there is an association with long-term use with dementia, which is no small things. And in fact, in the 2019 study, this was a UK study, I think, they found that people that took it for at least three years, there was an increase in dementia of almost 50% over baseline. So what do you, what, what's your approach with that? Do you just have people on it short term or do you just say this is, you know, there's always trade-offs you know, and... I think it's it's this idea of always trade-offs. And I think, you know, and that's when when we finally get to talking about, um, you know, using hormone replacement therapy or estrogen, it, it's that same idea. In life, there's risks and benefits to doing anything and there's risks and benefits to doing nothing. And we have to balance what a woman values at that time in her life. And for the breast cancer survivor, and I do a lot with very young, young survivors, um, I tell them that that, you know, our approach may change as they change, as they their different needs change, you know. So Do you ever prescribe clonidin? I've personally never prescribed clonidin for patients. It is, you know, a medication for blood pressure, which, you know, can be used and has been shown to be effective for, you know, vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and night sweats. Um I think that the kind of side effect profile of people not tolerating it has and finding other effective things has prevented me from really choosing it as a, as a, as a, as a first line option. Cause I find most women will have, you know, you know, be really helped by some of these other ones that we already yeah, discussed. No, I'm, I'm with have you. you. I'm, I'm not a fan. Much? 
but I have yeah. patients who've been prescribed it from, from others. The other thing I just want to mention really briefly is, as as you know, um, there's a new drug, which we are hoping will be FDA approved very soon. We are, we're recording this in March, and we are <laughs> thinking that in May that fesolinitant is going to be FDA approved, which is a completely different class of non-hormonal drug which we have every reason to believe that this will be a very, very good option for women who choose not to take estrogen or can't take estrogen. So I do have um, a podcast on that that will be coming out upon approval. So yeah, I've already taped it, (laughs) just getting ready for it because I'm I'm very excited about it. It's so important. Now, you know, of course, they did not study the drug in breast cancer survivors um, because that's not what studies do initially. Wait, wait, I want you to talk about, don't pass over that so quickly because I think that, that's a theme that is so critically important in our discussion that the absence of data is not the same as data. And in these clinical trials, they never include breast cancer survivors because to get FDA approval, they just don't want to deal with that variable. Exactly. So when they have the caution on that drug and so many other drugs out there, <laughs> do not use it if you have breast cancer, it's not because they found something bad. It's because they didn't study it, Right. Yeah, but there's no reason to believe that this new drug, there's no you know data out there that would suggest that it would be particularly unsafe for a breast cancer survivor. But, you know, it's going to be a new drug. And so, again, that will be part of the risk benefits analysis. Yeah. We'll say, hey, it seems to work great. Hopefully we're waiting for the final data to come out. Um, and but this is what we don't know. But, you know, um, but I do think it's, you know, I, I have like I'm really excited to have another non-hormonal option. I just hope that it's not marketed in a way that is like, hey, for all you ladies who are afraid of estrogen, you should go (laughs) for this new drug, you know? And and I've actually talked to the company a little bit about this, how they're going to market it. And and they are actually, um, at least what they're telling me, is that they are recognizing that that estrogen is the gold standard because of the benefits yeah. on the vulva, vagina, sexually, bones, and all of that. But certainly this is an option, a non-hormonal option, which will only address vasomotor symptoms and sleep. Um, the FDA approvals for both indications because, of course, we know if you're flashing all night, you're, you're not sleeping. All right. So here's the million-dollar question for you, Dr. Men. Um, mm-hmm. Is estrogen therapy menopausal estrogen therapy ever an option for a woman with a breast cancer diagnosis? Yes, absolutely. It is. And, you know, I think this is like the next frontier for the medical community to kind of discuss and really start to embrace, you know, I think right now we're in this renaissance of (laughs) menopausal, you know, care with, you know, you know, the the word getting out to the public and in the New York Times and in the, you know, popular culture that, hey, ladies, you know, for the average woman, the non-breast cancer survivor, hormone replacement therapy, menopausal hormone therapy is a safe and effective option if you're symptomatic and concerned about things like osteoporosis and other things for the the risk, uh, the benefits far outweigh the risks. So that is established. But, you know, you and I both see it's still like beating a dead horse. There's still so much misinformation out there. So then when you go to the breast cancer survivor and you even mention the word hormone replacement therapy or estrogen, people freak out. But it's not because there's data that suggests it's dangerous it's because they just don't have the information and they're just not knowledgeable about it and so we have to stop telling women no to things we have to start telling them here's the information we know 
And this is what we don't know. And then let's make a decision. And I think my approach to um, a breast cancer survivor who's dealing with significant menopausal symptoms, um, and in many cases, significant premature menopause symptoms, um, or the very long-term survivor, like myself, I'm at 22 years. You know, I never thought I'd get to the age 50, but here I am and really saying like, hey, I've got, you know, a long life ahead of me and, you know, what do I want to do for my menopausal symptoms and for my preventative health? And so it has to be a nuanced discussion and we can dive into what the research shows. Well, but I think when we look at the research and when, when people are told you have breast cancer, you can't take estrogen, I think that there's this general consensus. Well, they've done that study and it was really bad. As you mentioned earlier, that when women are placed in a high estrogen state like pregnancy, that it doesn't appear to have a negative um, impact, which is kind of paradoxical. Now, there is one study that's going on now. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, Northwestern, where I am, is is one of the sites where they're giving women with ductal carcinoma in situ an oral estrogen with basodoxafen. And, and when you think about this, that we have a bunch of academic breast surgeons who are willingly putting their patients on estrogen with an early diagnosis of breast cancer to see what happens. Um, I, I think that sends a loud, clear message right there that, and in fact, it may be protective. We certainly know in WHI for women who took estrogen alone between ages 50 and 60, there was an 18% decrease in breast cancer overall. So, and, and I think and if I want to just make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, it's not that you and I are sitting here and telling women who have breast cancer, go to your doctors and ask for an estrogen prescription. What we are saying is this is a conversation to be had and yes. it's shared decision making. Absolutely. And actually, we, we there is data out there. So, you know, between the early 1980s um, through around the time when the WHI caused a big flurry, there were a number of studies that looked at this. Not all of them were randomized controlled studies. A lot of it is observational data. Um, but there is, you know, over 25 studies out there, um, in addition to 20 review articles looking at this question of using hormone replacement therapy after a breast cancer diagnosis. And in every one of those 25 studies, and again, I'm going to say those studies were very, they're varied in the amount of women in them, the study design, um, many of them were observational, not randomized control. I believe there was four RCTs um, in that list. Uh, but in every single one, except for one, which we can talk about, it showed <clears throat> no increased risk of recurrence, no increased risk of mortality. And in some of them, it showed a decrease risk of mortality in, in those studies um, how far quality. out did they go how long did they follow these women because i'm not actually so familiar studies, with these studies yeah so the studies were um they varied and some of them were short-term follow-ups of two three four years others went out 10 years 12 13 14 years um well two three and, four years is actually i know in the world of, of oncology that's considered to be short-term but from a practical yeah. point of view, it's really not yeah. because if estrogen was fertilizer to their cancer, yeah. you would have seen an early recurrence, not a recurrence 10 years later. So this is striking. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the data is actually really fascinating. Anybody, I'm sure you've talked about it before on your show, um, but Dr. Avram Blooming uh, does a, a lovely synopsis of this of this data in his book, Estrogen Matters. 
And in the May 2022 issue of the Cancer Journal, um, he was the guest editor of that journal, and he invited all different um, scientific researchers and leaders, thought leaders in menopause to, you know, to contribute to the journal on this very topic. And in that journal, there is an excellent review article that he authored, actually. And he looks, he's got a table and a chart of all of the studies. And it's great. And, you know, we can provide a link to it because it's actually very easy for anybody, even a layperson. I will put a link to that in in the program notes. But why are oncologists then so afraid of estrogen? You know, I think I think (laughs) I think if you really get an oncologist in the room and really have an academic discussion with them, they understand the nuances of estrogen um, in relation to um, breast cancer. Uh, But I think large consensus statements or large practice guidelines on hormone therapy after breast cancer diagnosis, I think. I think they're they're still very afraid of it. And I think a lot of them, you know, I always tell you have to think about where your doctor's coming from. An oncologist's main perspective is they're obsessed with never having your breast cancer come back. They're obsessed with saving your life as they should be. That's what we want them for. But they're not their primary goal is not always thinking about quality of life. And, you know, the thing is most breast cancer survivors are early are early stage, right? Most of them are not going to die of their disease. Most of them are going to die of cardiac disease. They're going to die of cardiac disease because number one, that's what most women die of. But number two, yes. you are putting a number of young women into a premature menopause, which is going yes. to extend the amount of time that they're going to have vascular damage so that it puts them even higher risk of heart disease than the general population. Yes, and so... So there's so that's why probably in many of these studies looking at hormone therapy after diagnosis of breast cancer, there was in some of them showed a decrease mortality, all cause mortality because of that very point where protecting them probably (laughs) of cardiovascular events um, and lowering their overall death rate Um, and also finding that they don't have an increased risk of um, of a breast cancer recurrence. So, you know, my approach is to, you know, to talk to them. Here's a summary of what we do know. And be honest that many of these studies are were smaller. They were observational. They they're not a definitive discussion. And there is one outlying study um, that the oncologists know about. And this is probably getting back to their fears called the habits trial. Um, and it was um a randomized control study, actually, that was stopped early because they found in the arm of women taking estrogen with a synthetic progestin that those breast cancer survivors had a slightly increased risk of recurrence. But interestingly enough, at their longer term follow up, I believe it was at eight or 10 years, they did not have a subsequent um increased risk of mortality or right. of distant recurrence. Right. Because we have to remember and the, as you and I both know, the devil is in the details. So in this one study, and this is the only one out of the 25 studies that I mentioned, in this one study that showed a slight increased risk of recurrence, that recurrence was only in either the contralateral breast, meaning the breast that was not removed um, for women who did not have a bilateral mastectomy, or it was in the breast that had where they had a lumpectomy. So it was only local recurrence. And then the 
Details get even more interesting. The women in the study were not required to do a mammogram before they entered the study. What? Yeah. So they might have already just had breast cancer. It could have been a second primary even. Yes, exactly. And the women who were found to have a re- increased risk of recurrence never had an increased risk of distant recurrence. Okay. So that's so really, again, they really didn't important. die from the disease and we're not minimizing no. getting a recurrence or a second breast cancer, no. but there's a very big difference between getting a second breast cancer and having a higher mortality down the road. And that did exactly. not happen. And then we always have to remember when we talk about studies, particularly with breast cancer, our treatments are always evolving. And a lot of these older studies, these women were not randomized based on if they were HER2 positive or whether if they had other high risk aspects of their um you know, of their breast cancer, because we've got very nuanced ways of distinguishing different types of breast cancer. So um, not to mention the women who have a a genetic mutation, such as a BRCA mutation. Obviously, those women are going to be at dramatically higher risk for recurrence, no matter what their treatment, if they keep their breasts, if they keep their breasts. And interestingly enough, in this one study, um, they were not even they didn't have a mammogram screening of their intact breast. Yeah. So many people who look at this data think that this study was very poorly designed and is not. And when we've got 24 other studies saying one thing and one study that we think was poorly designed saying the other, I think we have to be honest with women about it. But it's interesting. That study was one that the oncologists all know about because it was published in their journals. So I think that really caused a lot of fear. And when that study was stopped, it was around the same time that the WHI misinformation and kind of misinterpretation of the data was misinterpretation. Yeah. Misinterpretation. Right. So that creates a lot of fear. And then basically the interest in looking at this was shut down. Yeah. But also just and I have a whole episode on WHI that explains um, it. It's the great job. And that's like my favorite episode. (laughs) But I just do want to point out right now that 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 slight increase that was seen in breast cancer in the WHI was in women who were taking um, up synthetic progesterone, medroxyprogesterone yeah. acetate. And we do not see that increase in micronized progesterone, which is what we prescribe now. So, you know, it's like you said, the devil is in the details. Okay. I just want to do a brief, brief chat about um, herbs and lifestyle things, because I really cover that in, in my book, Hot Flash Holland. In chapter seven, I go through every single herb out there. You know, which ones work, which ones don't work, which ones we just don't know. There's absolutely no science. So I'm not going to go through all of that, but I am going to ask you if you're going to recommend or if you recommend any herbs, which one of these over-the-counter products would you tell your your patients are even worth a try? I'm seeing a long pause. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. I I just don't, I've never found any of them to be particularly helpful for particularly the patient population that I'm seeing. You know, when women have severe menopausal symptoms in the cases of having surgical menopause, both of their ovaries being removed or being an aromatase inhibitor where your estrogen levels are even lower than the average menopausal woman, right? Those women, I have never found anecdotally to respond to any of these herbal concoctions that are out there and they're really suffering. So I have to say when, when they come to me, they're all, they've already tried. They've a bunch already of tried all that. And that's very much. And I'm like, and we're moving right on. 
Yeah, and, and, and I totally get that. That makes perfect sense. And I've always said that even if someone is going to get a response to something like um, S equal or something like that, these are the women that have mild symptoms. The women that are very severe, yes. it's just not going to touch it. It was at this point in the interview that Dr. Men, who was in the middle of a snowstorm, lost her internet connection. It happens. So we never got to the second part of our discussion, which was supposed to be about sex after breast cancer. The truth is, post-breast cancer sexuality really needs a whole segment. So nature intervening was not such a bad thing, and we've already made plans to tape it. Takeaways from my discussion with Dr. Men. Women who have severe hot flashes are generally not going to get the help they need from over-the-counter remedies. The most effective prescription non-hormonal options are the SSRIs, the SNRIs, gabapentin, oxybutynin, and the soon-to-be-available fesalinotint. And while it's a highly controversial area with shared decision-making, estrogen is an option that is not out of the question. We may see a time in the not-so-distant future that estrogen will routinely be on the list of options offered to women with breast cancer. I also want to be really clear that in today's segment, when Dr. Men and I are talking about controversies in estrogen use, we are talking about systemic estrogen for the treatment of hot flashes and the benefits to bone health, cardiovascular disease, and cognitive function. The use of local vaginal estrogen for the treatment of vaginal dryness, painful sex, and bladder symptoms is not controversial and is commonly endorsed, even by oncologists. And if you need convincing before my next episode with Dr. Men, check out episode 11, Vaginal Estrogen is Not Poison. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light.